I'm Marty Moscow, and welcome to The Connection. Last week, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman checked himself into a hospital for treatment for depression, earning praise from many for his openness in seeking help and his willingness to be public about it. Fetterman is not alone. Almost 10% of Americans and a third of stroke victims struggle with serious depression, which can include persistent feelings of emptiness, despair, and lack of self-worth. It can lead to sleep problems, difficulty concentrating, changes in appetite, even thoughts of suicide. Many more have experienced depressive symptoms from time to time or have watched a loved one battle the disease. While there is greater understanding of depression and other mental illnesses today, there is still stigma, which can lead a person to hide their symptoms and not pursue treatment. There are also barriers to care because of provider shortages, high costs, lack of insurance, and lack of cultural competency that prevent many from getting the help they need. Today on The Connection, we look at the root causes of depression, treatment options, how to destigmatize depression and other mental illnesses, and how to support families who are helping loved ones who are battling depression. Before I introduce our guest, I want to make sure that you have the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline in case you or someone that you know needs help, and that number is 988 Ashley Clayton is a mental health advocate and research associate in the Department of Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. Ashley Clayton, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Also with us, Nee Addy. He's the Albert E. Kent Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Director of Scientist Diversity and Inclusion at Yale School of Medicine, also the host of the Addy Hour podcast. And Nee Addy, nice to have you with us on The Connection as well. Thank you so much, Marty. It's wonderful to be here. And wonderful to have both of you here. And I do want to start with stigma. And actually, Ashley Clayton, let me begin with you as someone who has struggled, as you have written, uh, for most of your life with depression. What does John Fetterman's decision to not just seek uh, inpatient treatment for himself, but to be public about it, what does that mean to you? Um, I mean, it is unprecedented, really, to see someone, especially a political figure, open up about an active um, depressive issue. Uh, people will talk about it, something in their past, um, but also something as acute as needing inpatient care, which I think we've done a great job over the years of destigmatizing depression. It's probably one of the least stigmatized mental illnesses at this point, in my opinion. But talking about inpatient care and what that means um, and in seeking that treatment tends to be more stigmatizing. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited to see, I mean, I'm very sad that he needs sure. that, you know, that he's, that he's not well right now, but um, it's such a demonstration of courage, both to take care of himself and to know, hey, I need this, I need this extra help right now. Um, and then to be really public about it, he didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I also think seeing the outpouring of support is very encouraging as a person who struggles with depression, who has been in hospitals, different points through her life. Um, but to see that so far, it seems like most people are responding um, positively and really saying this could potentially be a paradigm shift. 
for how we talk about things. And that is indeed good news. Niadi, let me get you in on the conversation, asking the question slightly differently. It's interesting when he, when Senator Fetterman had his stroke a year ago, almost a year ago before he became senator, uh, there was no discussion about whether he would go to the hospital to get treatment for his stroke. But here we are talking about um, the sort of newsmaking quality of him seeking help for his for his depression. Yes, I think you've raised a really important point that really gets to the heart of the issue here because we do, I think we can all relate to that aspect of how do we react in these situations. So when it's a physical ailment, there's not much hesitancy in terms of someone needs to get care and someone needs to have that treatment. And we don't automatically tend to start to evaluate, well, what, what would their work life be like after the fact? But we do that so automatically when it comes to mental health. So even as Ashley stated, I think it's such a paradigm shift in that sense. It is encouraging to see the responses that people have given to him, but I think it also forces the question for a lot of us and in a lot of these sectors as well. And I do want to pick up on that. Let me go back to you, though, Nee Addy, and, and mm-hmm. in doing some homework for the show, it seems pretty clear that while there are certain symptoms associated with depression, they can be uniquely felt by an individual. What are the signs that people should look for? Yes, that's a very good question. And one of the things that we often say, again, speaking as someone who is a scientist, not a clinician, but just knowing that it's important to pay attention to changes. So changes in mood, changes in motivation, and when those changes last for long periods of time. So when they're persistent and when they really become disruptive to the person's life. So I think sometimes people are hesitant to make that known or to connect those individuals with others. But when those signs really persist for multiple weeks, then it's really important to pay attention to that, to um, to talk to the person, and to also ask them if they're willing to seek professional help. And Ashley, you have been public about some of your struggles with your own depression, um, which seemed to begin in childhood with some traumatic events. Um, can you take us back to, you know, 10-year-old Ashley Clayton and and what her life was like? Yeah, so um, 10-year-old Ashley uh, was on the outside uh, like a very well-adjusted child who had many friends and did very well at school, but I felt so alone all the time. I felt like no one saw me, no one understood what I was feeling. I had big feelings, but I was actually, as a 10-year-old, pretty good at hiding them, Hmm. Um, but just felt like I would be a burden if I were to share anything that is going on with me. Um, I started to, you know, self-harm at a really young age, both as a way to, I think, release some of those emotions that I was, um, you know, penning up, and also... um, I just felt so bad about myself. I, mm. I felt like I deserved um, deserved to be hurt. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, as a, as a child, my depression looked pretty, there are some similarities, but, but different than it, it does now. Um, but you wouldn't have known looking at me, um, you wouldn't have known even if you were my friend that I was struggling with things like this. Uh, so I think it can be really, really tricky to to even be able to to share that with people, figure out, you know, I didn't have the language to share with people sure. um, and, you know, find find people with whom, um, you know, you can, you can connect and feel safe. 
And Ash, I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot. I told you before sure. going on the air, if there's something I ask you you don't want to answer, just tell me and we will move on. I'm perfectly fine with that. But you had a secret. I mean, a secret you were, a, a, a scary, horrible secret that yeah. you were you were keeping from the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was experiencing uh, ongoing uh, pretty severe sexual abuse as mm-hmm. a child up until I was about 13 um, and and didn't wasn't able to tell anyone about that. And so I think a lot of my feelings of loneliness also came from having to harbor this very big secret and living in day to day fear of, you know, what what might happen to me, um, you know, just given the, the, you know, the situation I was in. So and I'm trying to imagine, you know, you as a as a young girl and and what it must have been like to to hold that secret, such a, you know, a dangerous secret in so many ways um, and to be so alone in the world. Yeah, um, you know, it was it was very overwhelming. I didn't uh, I did the best I could with it, but sure. it's something no one should ever have to experience and certainly should never have to keep secret and hold and hold alone so indeed Niadi, let me turn to you and it's just so I hear it in Ashley's voice but it's just you know it's just so painful to hear especially in a child you know to hear that that level of suffering mm-hmm yeah, I agree. And I think, uh, first of all, I always just commend Ashley for her bravery and sharing her story yeah. with so many people and the way that she has been an advocate for these things. But she's also brought up so many important points as well. Um, and you also asked that in your first question, Marty, about how this can look different in so many people. And some people, you can see a shift from their normal mode of behavior or actions or motivation, as it were. But then in other situations where, like in Ashley's situation, if someone is going through a traumatic situation or exposed to something that can be hidden and not seen. And so I think it's so important that we as a culture and as a society are aware of all of these differences and that we don't get stuck in a mindset that depression only looks like X, Y, or Z because it's so easy when we get in that mindset to dismiss things that are real and that are there. Well, let me pick up on that. Obviously, you know, trauma and depression, one can understand that. What are some, are some what are some of the other I guess risk for depression as as we look even beyond that. What what happens with someone like Ashley? Yeah. So even so, all the different situations that people have been through, and as Ashley mentioned too, this is something that was that she had to keep secret for a lot of different reasons. Even if it's a situation where someone that might not necessarily have gone through a specific traumatic experience, but is starting to experience depression, these can have lots of impacts on our lives down the road. So how we engage in different situations, how we enter different spaces, just in our relationships and our interactions. So it's something that we have to be aware of because it definitely affects people's functioning. And then even as we talk about things like suicidal ideation, so many times you'll hear people share stories who will say, oh, I had no idea that that person was thinking that way or was struggling or felt like they need to escape. On the other hand, sometimes you will hear people ruminate about certain thoughts of suicide, but those who are nearby or loved ones feel like they can't bring 
bring up that topic because it might make things worse. And that's actually a myth. A lot of the research has shown that when you bring up those conversations with people, it's actually more likely to help them and to be alerting and let people know that you've seen them and that you are aware of these things and help them get into treatment and support as well. Well, I wonder, Ashley, if you could speak to that. You've, you've written about some of the, the treatment that you got, some of the, the bad treatment, some of the, the, the better treatment, but also that there were there was a therapist in particular that you spoke out to who who saw you and, and heard you and, and how important that was. Yeah, so, um, you know, fast forward from 10-year-old Ashley to 24-year-old Ashley or somewhere <laughs> around there. Um, I had been experiencing really severe chronic depression for a couple of years and was um, persistently suicidal or had suicidal ideation. And I had been working, trying everything I could, but working in therapy and being very open about this is what I'm experiencing. I'm scared. Um, you know, these thoughts won't go away. And, you know, up to this point, as a therapist should, you know, asking more about that, helping me build skills to um, cope with these sure. feelings, building plans, doing all those things. But this one day... I was particularly hopeless and I just sat in front of her and I was like, I just want to die. Mm. And she paused and leaned forward and said, I know. Wow. And just kind of left it at that for a little bit. And in that moment, I felt so seen where she was like, I, I believe you. I know that you are in this darkness. And it felt like she just kind of, sat down in that darkness with me for a moment. Actually, that uh, it, yeah, that is so such a powerful experience. I want to pick up on it uh, after this short break. We are talking about depression today on Radio Times. And again, there is a phone number, 988. It's the Suicide Crisis Lifeline. And we have much more to talk about after this very short break. We'll be right Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne. Moss we are talking about understanding the causes of depression, depression's impact on the whole family, something we will get to, and also some of the interventions that show promise. Talking with uh, Nee Addy, he's a neuroscientist at Yale University, also Ashley Clayton, mental health advocate. And I do want to introduce a guest in just a moment or two, but Ashley, I want to pick up on what you said only because it was so powerful what that therapist said to you when you were really in the depths of your despair. And she said, I know. And, and what it meant to be seen and heard by someone who was so critical in your life, obviously, at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that is difficult to, to articulate, but is how alone you feel in that experience. And you have lots of people, if you're lucky, are supportive and offering you know suggestions and solutions and you have some people who really can't understand I think the gravity of the suffering and I think we need to think about when we you know tell people you know it's worth sticking around really understand what it is you're asking them to do you're asking them to bear this unbearable suffering 
And she knew that and saw that and then sat with me in it. So she was able to bear some of that for me. And, and it gave me just a tiny grain of hope, you know, of, of feeling this genuine connection and feeling like in this moment, I'm not alone. Um, and how powerful that can be when someone, you know, is in crisis. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that, and I know it's not easy to talk about, but it's it's so important, I think, for our listeners to hear. Let me introduce our third guest, Andrew uh, Nirenberg, is director of the Dalton Family Center for Bipolar Treatment Innovation at Massachusetts General Hospital, also a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And Andrew Nirenberg, nice to have you with us on The Connection as well. Um, thanks so much. Nice to be here. Nice to have you with us. Picking up on what um, Ashley Clayton was just saying, as, as a as a therapist, as a clinician, I'm thinking about that first session that you have with someone who is experiencing depression. What is the message that that a good therapist would transmit to someone who's who's suffering with depression and really in some kind of a crisis mode? I think Ashley really said it well. The first thing is that. Uh, to listen to somebody very carefully and to understand their own individual and unique experience of depression and also to let them know that there's hope that they can uh, feel better, that they can suffer less. And specifically with what Ashley was talking about, how much would you have to suffer less that it would be worthwhile living? What is it that hurts so much that if that was a little bit better, then the balance is you would decide to live. And are we talking talk therapy? Are we talking sort of a mix of different kinds of talk therapy with with medications? Yeah, for many people, uh, very specific types of evidence-based therapies can be quite helpful, like cognitive behavioral therapy for depression, in addition to medication. And again, the the balance between those two really has to be personalized for what somebody needs. And by CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, just in one sentence, describe that for our listeners. It helps people to think about how they're thinking. And when people are depressed, they think in rather stereotypical ways. Uh, And once they can recognize that and label it, then they can react to their own thoughts rather than just believing their thoughts. So putting words to thoughts, to feelings? Well, it's almost like thinking about thinking. Thinking about uh, thinking. Which which we usually don't do. Uh, We tend to believe everything we think, and it helps us question uh, the beliefs that we might have, and also specifically the ways that people think when they're depressed. And they, for example, people will tend to think in black and white ways. So... I'm terrible because I made a mistake. And they'll start to berate themselves and give themselves a hard time. Nee, Addie, let me get you back in on the conversation. From, from your perspective, what are some of the treatments that have shown, shown promise? Yes, and I actually want to also just highlight one of the points that Andrew made as well, which you were asking about, which is combined treatments as well. So he made an excellent point in terms of it really does come down to individualize what is going to work best for that person. For some individuals, having something like cognitive behavioral therapy can be very effective. For others, sometimes that needs to be combined with medication as well. As I've also talked in different faith communities, people have also asked about spiritual practices, so even things like meditation 
or mindfulness or prayer. And there is evidence that those things can actually help people move through certain situations. But you can also combine those things with medication. You can combine that with therapy. And then even looping back to something that Ashley mentioned as well, just the, the importance of community. Yeah. And in the sense in that session, she was in community with her clinician at that time. They were able to lean in together. And she was also able to get a glimmer of hope. And there's so much evidence showing the importance of hope, no matter what modality people are going through, that can actually make it more likely they will be able to get to a place of healing. And so one of the things that we've been talking about quite for quite a while is just having a holistic approach to all different tools that we can use, whether that's from psychology or from psychiatry or from spiritual practice or from being in community or combining them together. It's so important. Ashley, I want to pick up on something that, that Andrew said about the kind of black, when you're in the... I guess the the depths of depression, the kind of black and white thinking that can really cloud your your judgments about things. Can you relate to that? Does does that feel familiar to you? Certainly, um, I think that's probably the default mode. Um, you know, as I you know, I've I've had depression for a really long time at this point, and I would say especially as an adolescent and a young adult black and white thinking, um, you know, for everything. Um, and then, you know, I, I've done CBT, I've done all sorts of different kinds of therapy and, and able to kind of think about how I think and have more flexibility there, but it's a lot of work, um, to do that too. You know, it's difficult. It isn't like, you know, oh, I learned this thing and it's just going to happen. It's, you know, you have to be able to really put it in, into practice, but, um, I think one, one thing that's really difficult for me when I'm experiencing a moderate to severe episode is, you know, what clinically I think is referred to as foreshortened future. Um, so it's this, you can't see past kind of what's happening. And, and it's this really painful thing of like, I can't imagine feeling differently because I can't even imagine what the next hour would be. Um, so I think, you know, there's a poverty in thinking, poverty in um, mental flexibility and problem solving that is a symptom of depression and can be really, you know, really tricky um, and, and difficult for the person to, to manage. Well, I, I can, I, I mean, I, that, that's got to be really tough picking up on that, Andrew Nirenberg. So, so how does a therapist help someone think beyond that, that hour of despair that, that they feel is staring them in the face? So one of the things is to help people realize, as Ashley said, that their, let's call that a memory of the future is gone, and that all they see is what's in front of their nose. And in the past, that wasn't true. And in fact, they're, they're, you almost try to get people to be curious about what future might hold and to be less certain that this will last forever. So asking, I mean, if you're curious, you ask yourself, you ask questions, right? Andrew? Yes, yeah, that, that's right. So you're asking yourself, while you're having this conversation with yourself, you're asking yourself questions to sort of get beyond that, that hour that's facing you? Yeah, so, so for example, you help people get the tools to say, okay, what am I thinking now? I think that this is going to last forever. How does that make me feel? Absolutely horrible and hopeless. Is there an alternative? 
yeah, you know, maybe this, maybe forever is a really long time, and I recognize that it hurts now. But when things hurt, you know, they tend to pass. And then, how does it make you feel? Oh, not so bad. Maybe a little bit more hopeful. But also, I want to pick up on something Ashley said too, Andrew, about all the there are these tools, but that it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to put them into into effect. Does, does that make sense to you as a therapist, a clinician? Yeah, a- Ashley really touched on something important that. CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, sounds great unless you're in a lot of pain, and it's very hard to access that. And that's what Nee was talking about before, where you also may need medication if it's severe, because otherwise you just can't bring these things up if you feel horrible. Let me just uh, reintroduce the three of you uh, on The Connection today. We are talking about depression, and one of the reasons uh, that we wanted to have this conversation was the fact that uh, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman uh, signed himself into inpatient uh, treatment for depression. This was last week, and the voice you heard is a- a- excuse me, Andrew Nirenberg. He's director of the Downton Family Center for Bipolar Treatment Innovation at Massachusetts General Hospital, also a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Nee Addy is with us as well. He's the uh, he's an associate professor of psychiatry, director of scientist diversity and inclusion at Yale School of Medicine. And also with us, Ashley Clayton. She's a mental health advocate and research associate in the Department of Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. And she's been very generous, very courageous, sharing some of her struggles with depression. Niadi, I want to pick up on on access and cultural competency. Um, And um, even when you look at who's a clinician in this country, they're generally white people. (laughs) How Mm -hmm. is that an issue, you think, for for people that are people of color who are seeking treatment for depression? Yeah, it's such an important topic and definitely is an issue in a lot of ways. So that's something that a lot of us have been talking about, that we just need to have a clinician base that actually reflects the society that we have as well. And that is for so many different reasons, even if we think about things of efficacy. So when we talk about aspects of stigma in certain communities, it can be that much harder for a person of color to be fighting through the stigma that we all have to fight through in society, but then to go to a place where someone may not look like you and you wonder if they're going to be able to understand your experience or where you're coming from. And so that piece you brought up of cultural competency is so important. You can be from a different background and learn and understand about others' background and have that cultural competency, which helps with the efficacy. But then even just in terms of access, where are the clinics located? Are they in certain zip codes and not in others? These are so many different things that we have to wrestle with that have a huge impact on the effects of the treatment, how successful they are. And also another point is just sometimes depending on the background of the person who has come into the clinical setting, there can be biases in the system where people from certain backgrounds are more likely to be diagnosed in one way that might not actually fit with their true diagnosis. So I know that's a much larger conversation, but there are lots of pieces to this as well. I mean, these are these are stereotypes left over from a bygone era that still exist. Me? Mm-hmm. Um, and some yes and no, things that are left over, but yes, definitely still exist in terms of how Um, our perceptions is, and some of the unconscious bias that comes into play. So stories that you'll hear sometimes, for instance, to really break it down, if it's a a black male child that comes into a certain situation, 
that child might be much more likely to be diagnosed with, for instance, ADHD than a child that does not look like that. Whether that, in fact, matches the true diagnosis or not, it may be a whole other ailment that's there. And so that also builds in hesitancy and skepticism. And so there are lots of things that we have to do on both sides just to really build that trust as well. Andrew, you want to add to that about the importance of cultural competency? Yeah, I think it's extraordinarily important, especially because of uh, you know, many ways that when people live in certain zip codes and they are subject to any sort of discrimination, that's chronic stress. And chronic stress can cause all sorts of problems, including depression. Well, and, and chronic stress can even, Andrew, affect people's brain chemistry. Well, it's it's more than that. It's It's that it affects our whole bodies, believe it or not. Um, there's a very fancy term called allostatic load, which is the way that our bodies respond to chronic stress over time. And it affects the brain. It affects everything else also. So it's really not good for your health. Ashley, you have uh, been hospitalized about five times. And I say that only because you you have written about it. Um and had such a mixed bag of experiences. And I wonder if what that tells us about our mental health care system. Yeah, um, I've, I've definitely had the great fortune of having outstanding care and have also had not so great care. I wouldn't say I've, I've ever had a terrible experience, um, but um, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's not a lot of standardization of it, or there is so much standardization that the person isn't seen. I think one thing that Andrew and me have both brought up is like, everything needs to be individualized, right? It's a person in a context. Um, their symptoms might look different, even though each person might have depression, um, their vulnerabilities, what they need. And I think it can be really difficult and challenging to um, run an inpatient unit that is very nimble and adaptable and resourced to be able to give each person adequate attention, to be able to have the time to sit and listen with them, you know, listen to them, to really get a sense for what's going on. Um, you know, and, and there is all sorts of um, interesting things about inpatient psychiatric care in terms of privilege systems um, and these kind of things. They're not true in every situation, right. but that, that can really create, I think, negative experiences and even more stigmatizing experiences of being on the union. Nee, years ago, before I had a job on the radio, I was a case manager, and this was mm. during deinstitutionalization where, mm -hmm. and there were these, you know, frankly, pretty horrible snake pit-like institutions here in Pennsylvania where people were just warehoused, never got any kind of treatment, and the idea was, let's get these people out of these institutions and let's get them care in the community. Never really worked out that way, but, but mm -hmm. where does that leave us today? Yeah, I think we're definitely still dealing with the repercussions of that in so many different ways, um, both in terms of where those individuals are and getting access to the, the care they need, but also in terms of how we perceive when people are going through certain situations. Um, so as you talked about, 
the community peace didn't come about as it needed to be. And that just perpetuates the situations that are there. I mean, a lot of the research will show that when you're looking at different mental health illnesses, stress and uncertainty is going to exacerbate what's already at play. Mm -hmm. And so when you have deinstitutionalization and you have people in more, many more stressful situations, that's only going to make things worse, make it harder for the access as well. But you can even hear it in how people talk about those who are navigating and struggling with mental health. Um, it's gotten better in terms of the words that we use. Perhaps we might not say that crazy person over here or those yeah. types of things, but we still have that in our language in so many different ways, and you can see it creeping up. Even as we've talked about today, the stigma has gone down, but still those conversations are still perpetuating in different ways. They just might have a slightly different tone to that when you start to question people's effectiveness or their ability to do the job, as it were. Those are, I think, also left over from that era. And how we view situations when people are going through mental health challenges, even though one in five adults is currently living with a mental health illness. So this wow. is something that's pervasive, but we still haven't quite gotten completely past that stigma yet. Andrew, we're almost up in a break here. And any quick comments before we take that break about where we where we yeah. stand now? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I completely agree with me. And, and also, in terms of Ashley's experience, the inpatient units are designed to get the outcomes that they're designed to get. They are generally not really patient-centric, but instead it's the it's built around what the staff needs, and I think that really needs to be reformed. Oh, wow. Well, let's take and, – and, Andrew, can you stay with us for the rest of the yeah. hour? Yeah, sure. Terrific. And that is Andrew Nirenberg. He's director of the Dalton Family Center for Bipolar Treatment Innovation at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Ashley Clayton is a mental health advocate research associate in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine. Nee Addy, associate professor of psychiatry, director of scientist diversity and inclusion at Yale School of Medicine, host of the Addy Hour podcast. And you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY. I'm Marty Moss Cohen. We're going to take a very short break, and we'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen talking with our guests about understanding and treating depression. We've been talking about some of the barriers to care, also giving mental health the same respect as physical health. And I do want to talk about stresses on families who have loved ones who are dealing with depression. First, let me make sure that you know this uh, National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, and that number is 988. Let me read an email that we got from one of our listeners. Catherine said, My dear husband of 35 years became seriously depressed with our, when our kids were 8 and 9. He was in a high-stress brokerage environment. His illness shattered our close-knit family, and the constant for us was nobody cares for the struggling healthy ones. I'm in awe of, of Fetterman's honesty, but we need this. It hurts to be have been to have been so forgotten. Every family is a system. Please take a moment to acknowledge those who are healthy and soldiering on, trying to support family members with severe severe depression. And Andrew, I wonder if I could get your response first. We haven't really talked about what it's like for families, but it's so critical for both them and also for the person with depression. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. It actually is, uh, it affects the whole family profoundly. And people can get some support from the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance, or DBSA. They can provide peer support. They can provide other people who've been through it so that people know that they're not alone. Ashley, I'd be curious about your response, and I'm assuming now your your family is aware of of your struggles as a, as a child and into adulthood. Uh, how have they been able to help you, and how do you think you've been able to help them? Yeah, so I'm very fortunate that I have an incredible husband who is nothing but supportive and has really taken care of me. Um, at periods where I am unwell, um, as the person receiving the care, uh, you know, there is this, this feeling, especially when you need a lot of care of guilt of, you know, I should be able to do this right symptom of depression. I should be able to take care of this myself. I should, you know, be able to push past this, which is, you know, symptom. Um, but you know, my, my husband is, is amazing and willing to jump in with, you know, any any help I need, um, you know, monitoring me if I need to be monitored, cooking for me, making me smoothies if I can't hmm. eat, um, you know, just these really basic things that go a long way. And what about for him? What do you think he has needed? Yeah, I think he's needed me to be honest with him. I think um, because I am a person who doesn't necessarily show when I'm unwell, I think one thing that helps him feel better is when I'm communicating when I'm not. Um, And I think being able to plan in times of wellness for, uh, you know, oh, these would be the things that are going to be helpful um, for me to also expand, right, my my support network. So it's not just one person, Um, you know, to have multiple people who, you know, as a community can come together. you know, and do that. But I I hear, you know, what that mother is saying. And, you know, you need care for the caretakers, and they need breaks, too. And that that's very, um, very important. And I think really thinking about a model of community care, um, both where the person who's who's unwell is is being cared for by many people, and the people who are taking care of have a circle outside of them that are lifting them up and bolstering them. I wonder, Ni Addy, if you could add to that, this, this, this community of care. Mm. Yeah, definitely so important. And again, it's, it's just encouraging to hear Ashley share about that so honestly. It reminds me of something she actually talked about um, with her therapist, with her clinician, about the weight that that person was willing to take on and lean in with her. And so I think when we're thinking about depression, we have to acknowledge that that is a weight for the families at times as well. A weight that they're willingly trying to take on, but still something that can be stressful and can be heavy for them. So there's the importance of family members and loved ones having that community. Andrew mentioned some great groups. The National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, is another one that does a great job just giving support to family members and friends. So they have a cohort, a community they can walk through this together. Um, And even as we talked about chronic stressors, having a loved one navigate through mental 
health challenges can be a chronic stressor for the family members, and we know that chronic stressors can also make it more likely that people might have their own mental health challenges. So how much more important it is that those going through it have that strong community to talk about those things and to say someone is there to listen to them and to support them. It just ties full circle in so many ways. Well, Andrew, I want to have you pick up on that. I'm thinking about the you know, the frustration that family members might have if, if someone is resistant to, to help or can't get the help that they need, the confusion, maybe the anger, you know, the frustration that they might feel as they see someone in their circle of loved ones who is struggling with depression. Yeah, and that's when they, I think, and bring in all the resources that they can from their uh, places of, of worship, from their community, from the people that they know, from their primary care physician, uh, from the local agencies that might help, and, and also uh, reiterate what Nee was saying, uh, the National Alliance for Mental Illness can help, the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance can help. What if someone sort of is denying what's going on? How do you deal with something like that? Well, you, you can ask them, how's this working out for you? You know, are you being able to meet the goals that you, is this the life you want to live? Um, and it's using what's called motivational interview to tr- interviewing to try to help connect with somebody so you can get to their goals and values. Ashley, do you want to add to that at all? And I'm just thinking as, you know, as you, you've talked about your husband, but just sort of how that how that relationship can work itself out so you can be helpful to each other, even in times of crisis. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think communication is a, is a huge thing, but I also just want to bring up, you know, the idea of what happens when someone in the family has cancer. Right. My brother, um, who has passed um, from brain cancer in 2021, but he and I were sick um, in very different ways. At the same time, we were on medical disability. You know, I was on full medical leave, as was he. And um, his family got support by setting up, right, setting up meal trains. People knew, people were doing these very practical things to take some of the load and the burden off. But we don't have the same parallel thing for when, you know, a father is in the, is, you know, in the hospital for depression or some other illness, right? It's kind of kept quiet and hush-hush. Um, but even just thinking about things like that, and I think the, the more you can share the load, um, you know, the more resilient the community is and, and you know, the more support the person who's unwell um, ultimately receives. Even, even a meal, right? Actually. Even real. Yeah. Um, you know, I've talked with my friends. I was uh, in 2016, I was in the hospital for over a month and was was really, really seriously um, depressed and suicidal. And when I got out, they said, can we can we build some kind of color system so that we know how you're doing? And can there be a list of things when you're in the orange zone that we know to do or when you're in the red zone that we know to do. Mm. And I think thinking about that kind of planning, you know, one thing that I love a clean house and I keep my house very clean, but when I'm depressed, it can be so hard um, to do that. And I would, you know, I, I put on the list of, of, you know, having a clean house if you could come over and clean or, uh, you know, i at this point in my life, I can, you know, pay for someone if I need help to come, but not everyone can do that. Sure. So even just thinking about, you know, 
not waiting till the crisis, um, if possible, uh, to think about, okay, what, what would be supportive of this person? What would be supportive of this family? Let me ask you, Ashley, uh, and I, I, I think that's so helpful, but what, what is not helpful? What, what do you think when someone is really depressed or even, you know, considering suicide, what, peop- what people should not say? Um, so I'm hesitant to make very broad strokes if it's never appropriate, but sure. in general, saying something like, you know, oh, but, you know, you don't seem depressed or you don't look depressed or, um, you know, oh, just get over it or be grateful for all the things you have, stop feeling bad for yourself. These kind of invalidating things of someone's experience, I think are probably almost universally unhelpful. Now that isn't to say that there isn't some nugget of truth of like being grateful could be helpful, but it's probably not going to, you know, pull you out of a major depressive episode. so, you know, I think in general, we're, we're not taking things seriously. I think when people open up, um, you know, they're, they're doing their best to tell you the truth. Um, mm. And so I think to, to see that and hold that as truth and try to be curious and understand what does that mean? What does it mean when you say you're, you know, really depressed? What, how is that looking for you in your life? What does that mean? Um, so Very helpful. Andrew, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I would add that that, um, Susan Noonan published an excellent book that tries to advise families of what do you do, what do you say when your loved ones are depressed. Ah. Uh, That's Susan Noonan. Susan Noonan, something to keep in mind. I should add that we have posted a list of resources and phone numbers for mental health support at whyy.org slash the connection. And again, that National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is 988. Nee, Addy, I was reading that something like half of people experiencing depression uh, do not either seek or do not get treatment, which is really worrisome. And we've been talking a little bit about some of the barriers to treatment. But how do we how do we move beyond that? How do we improve that? Yeah, I think one thing is what we're actually doing here today and just making sure that these conversations become commonplace. Um, so even as we let off, just thinking about what um, Mr. Frederman has done in terms of making sure that this is something that he announced, what he actually is doing, that took a lot of bravery. Yeah. And as much as us as a society, as we're navigating through that, can be honest about it to say that these are challenges that exist. I shared that statistic, one in five individuals in the U.S. living with a mental illness. There are a lot of us who are, are navigating through these things as much as we can talk about that openly and say that it's important and helpful to get that treatment. I think it's also helpful to have people like Ashley who can share about their experiences and what actually helped them get through. Yeah. She has talked about her experience in the past with ketamine and how that was life-saving for her. There are other treatments that people use also to change thinking like transmagnetic stimulation, which not everybody has access to, which can also create changes. So when people realize that, oh, cognitive behavioral therapy helped me, medication helped me, having TMS helped me. And so it was helpful to actually voice these things and move through that. I think as much as we can have those honest conversations in small groups and in society as large is is important. The last thing I'll say is that we're all influencers. So I always tell people that you may not have a you know a million followers on, on social media, but how you talk about, think about, and even joke about mental health is going to impact those in your immediate sphere. If one in five are navigating through mental illness, 
your conversation is going to impact how others actually approach that. So important to keep in mind. Absolutely. To you, Andrew, um, is there a cure for depression? Well, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily a cure, like there's no cure for diabetes, but there are really very good treatments, both medications and some of the things that Nee was talking about. And is it confused at times with sadness or burnout? Or, I mean, is it it important to label it for what it is? Yeah, I think it is because it's really serious. And Nee was talking earlier about language, and it's unfortunate that the word depression also refers to other things that are not as serious. But if you talk to people like Ashley and they describe what it's like, it's nothing like sadness. Do you agree, Ashley? I do. Yeah, I think sadness can be one piece and might even be the smallest piece of it for some people at certain times. Um, But I think, you know, when we're talking about it as a clinical issue, you know, it, it means something specific and it means something specific to that person. And that isn't, I feel depressed because, you know, uh, my my lunch date got canceled, right? It's, it's, it's um, a much bigger, um, more pervasive, serious, very, and can be very serious um, thing. Actually, I was listening to Minnesota Senator uh, Tina Smith. She talked about her own uh, struggles with depression. And one of the ways she described it was as if all the color had gotten drained out of her life. And I thought that was such Mm a powerful image. Does that, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Um, you know, where, where everything, nothing feels good. There's no um, positive feelings. You lose interest in things. But it's interesting that you brought up that example and those words, because at one point I was so depressed that I actually felt like colors and bright colors in my environment were hurting my eyes wow. um, because it just felt like too much. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the, you know, the draining of colors is something that people can imagine and what a life would look like in, in black and white sure. without all the beauty. Nee, we're almost out of time here, and, and, and I haven't brought up the pandemic, but I wonder um, with the isolation that so many experience and the loss from the pandemic, mm-hmm. has that exacerbated uh, the problems of depression, not just here in the U.S., but around the world? Yes, it definitely has, and all the evidence has pointed towards that. And even to the point that Andrew made earlier, isolation is also just bad for your health, not just for mental health, but even if we look at things like cardiac function and susceptibility to a whole host of illnesses. So that has definitely made things worse. At the same time, it's also given us some increased awareness. So one of the challenges with anxiety and depression is just not knowing how to navigate during times of uncertainty. And there's a brain basis to that as well. So with everything we experience about the uncertainty, many more people could relate to how challenging it is to navigate through that and also be able to empathize with those who have that feeling more pervasively. So things have, you know, there are increased rates of depression, but I think it's also opened our eyes to what we need to do as a society to move forward together. Well, we have to leave it there. My thanks to all three of you for joining us on The Connection today, especially to you, Ashley Clayton. I really appreciate your your openness and your honesty and your willingness to share, obviously, the, the difficulties in your life. It's, it's, it's very powerful and very important. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And again, Ashley Clayton, mental health advocate, research associate in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine. Nee, Addy, thank you for joining us as well. 
It's wonderful being here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Director of Scientist Diversity and Inclusion at Yale School of Medicine. He's the host of the Addy Hour podcast. And Andrew Nirenberg, thank you for joining us on The Connection as well. Thanks so much. You're welcome. It's really helpful to do this. Absolutely. appreciate that. Director of the Doughton Family Center for Bipolar Treatment Innovation at Massachusetts General Hospital, Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Well, that's it for The Connection. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline 988. Check us out, whyy.org slash the connection. We have a lot of phone numbers and resources there. Al Banks, the engineer for today's show. Debbie Builder, Paige Murray, Bessler Producers, I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne.